Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. We are continuing our series today in the not-so-minor prophets, and we're looking at the prophet Joel this morning. Prophet Joel is a prophet that we looked at quite a while ago in some depth. We spent a few weeks in the prophet Joel, but this is years ago now. Uh, I think we were in the Elks Lodge when we did that series. And so um, we're going to look at the entire prophet of Joel in one week, and that's what we're doing through this series. We're looking at... Twelve prophets towards the end of the Old Testament that are often called minor prophets. They're called this not because their input is minor or because they're lesser, but because they're shorter. Every single prophet was able to fit all of their writing on a single scroll instead of the multiple scrolls that it required Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or even Daniel to have. And so these minor prophets are not minor in message, merely minor in size, We want to hear what they have to say. We want to open ourselves up to what the Spirit will do through the words of Joel this morning. I'm not going to read the entire book of Joel to you, although I encourage you, please, to take some time this week and do that. Um, Every time we look at one of these prophets, we're going to look at some key passages, but we won't have the time to read the entire book, even a shorter one like Joel. The exception may be Obadiah. That's only one chapter long. I'm pretty sure we can handle one chapter. But um, I encourage you, please, sometime this week, open up the book of Joel and read this prophecy. This one's only three chapters long, and I think you'll be blessed by it, particularly after we've talked about it. Maybe you'll be able to understand it a little better than you have before. I'm going to read for us just a few verses from Joel chapter 2 to get us started. This is Joel 2, starting in verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, Where is their God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would encourage us, strengthen us, convict us of sin. Show us, Heavenly Father, that you are a God who is slow to anger, fast to show mercy and love. Would you be at work in our hearts, Holy Spirit? Give us ears that are able to hear, hearts willing to understand and obey. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to the internet, 
I think we all have our weaknesses, those things that can suddenly turn two minutes of rest into two hours of what did I just do with the last two hours. Um, there are, in fact, websites and areas of the internet designed to do just that, to suck you into a rabbit hole of otherwise meaningless content. And you watch video after video or look at image after image, and it can really, it can destroy an entire day because you look up and say, oh, I was supposed to be productive today, and I just spent two hours on whatever my favorite website is. And they're not even necessarily inherently sinful websites. They're just designed to be time sucks. One of my weaknesses is before and after photos. I love them before and after photos, particularly of places. I love to look at a before and after photo of a place to see how it's changed and developed over time. Sometimes it's over a couple centuries, sometimes only over a couple of decades. Here's one of my favorites, before and after photo of Dubai. That's Dubai in 1991 on the left and Dubai in 2016 on the right. How incredible is that? A little strip in the middle of the desert, turns into one of the technological marvels of the world. But this is my favorite. This has been my favorite for the longest time. I want to share it with you because it's close to home. Of course, that's Manhattan on the right. But artists have done work to try and understand what it would have looked like before it was developed before we started building buildings and big old skyscrapers. So that's Manhattan Island on the left. I'm assuming that little bit of smoke there is from tribes who are building fires. I'm not sure why there's smoke on the left there. I have no idea. But I, I love that image. Here's Manhattan Island before, and now Manhattan Island as of the last couple of years. And I love Manhattan. I love New York City. I love going down there with the family and looking at things. I mean, just this past summer, I was able to take uh, one of my daughters to see Statue of Liberty. She's not pictured there, but where you go to see her is there on the bottom left. She's all that greenery. Uh, of course, you can't see Central Park there, which has been shown that if Central Park wasn't there, the pollution in New York City would be worse than anywhere else in the world. Central Park is actually keeping the city alive. Um, but it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of before and after. I love that. Here's another before and after that I really enjoy, and it has to do with the way people fix furniture, because it's something I can't do. I don't know how to do that. So on the left, you see the before picture of the chair. This is like a, a nursery rocking chair. Um, the seat's torn through. I don't know if you can see that. And then it's actually sitting on the floor because the rocker portion is completely to the side. It's broken off. Legs gone. Someone's taken that and turned it into the beautiful chair that you see on the right. Gorgeous piece of wood. They fixed the mesh, and of course, it's now on the rocker instead of next to the rocker. And um, I think some of us could even, maybe, maybe we would want to switch them in our own lives. Like maybe that was the before, and now this is the after on the left. Right? This is the, this is the years and years that the world has given us has turned us into the left <laughs> instead of the right. But I like this picture because I think that it actually, it gets to one of the themes of our sermon today, which is restoration. I love to see the way people can restore old things and make them new. A lot of people do this with cars, they'll do this with musical instruments, they'll, they'll do this with furniture. They'll take something old and they'll transform it into something new. 
My favorite city in the world, as you all know, is Philadelphia. And um, one of the things they've done in Philadelphia is they've kept a lot of the old architecture. But they've made the city new by adding in new architecture. And so it creates this beautiful juxtaposition of history and progress. It's gorgeous. Not everybody thinks Philadelphia is like that, but I do because I love it. Restoration is something that I think a lot of us have longed for because I think a lot of us do feel like we're on the left over here, that we're the before picture, not the after picture, that life has just beat us up. Maybe when you think of your career, you think of that chair on the left. Maybe when you think of your relationships with your kids, you think of the chair on the left or your marriage. Maybe you think of yourself physically and you feel like I'm the one, the chair on the left. And and the question that we have to ask ourselves in this space is, what about my soul? Which picture behind me would we say our soul looks like? What impact, what damage has our soul received over the last years? Damage from others, but ordinarily damage that we've done to ourselves. It's true, we can hurt one another, We can damage each other's souls, and that's a a horrifying thing that needs to be addressed and confronted and dealt with. But I think too often we are quick to point the finger rather than look at ourselves and say, what damage have I caused my own soul? What have I done through sin? What have I done through a lack of discipline that has caused my soul to maybe look more like the before photo than the after? And the answer of reversing this The answer for restoration, that restoration that many of us desire, that we long for from time to time, well, begins in the soul, works its way out from there, and that restoration is only possible through repentance, through a a complete turning around of the soul. And that's what repentance is. You see here in this photo, this is a road with a switchback, a U-turn type of a road. You're going one direction, and then the road turns you around, and you're heading in the opposite direction. That's repentance. Repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry about something. It is a radical transformation of the soul. And that transformation of the soul is what Joel is after in his prophecy. He's not merely interested in people saying sorry for their sins. He's not merely interested in people seeing that there's something wrong. He wants them to address it by turning in the other direction. He wants the nation to repent. And in this prophecy of Joel, we'll hear not only the call for the nation of Israel to repent, but I believe we will will hear a call for us to repent, to take repentance seriously to turn around and walk in the other direction, in the direction of Christ, rather than the direction of Adam. Now, before we dive into the book of Joel, let's remind ourselves of some definitions and of some history as we're going in, because these minor prophets, they did their prophetic ministry in a time and in a place. And we can't ignore that, otherwise we won't understand what's going on. It's difficult with Joel, I'll explain why in a minute. But we have to have a broad understanding of first, what is prophecy? And second, where are they doing their prophetic ministry? Here's the definition of prophecy that we're using. Oh, I'll come back to that. 
Here's the definition of prophecy that we're using. It's from an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann. He says, the task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. It's, in other words, the prophetic ministry is to help us see the world and think about the world differently than our culture would want us to. It's a different way of seeing, thinking, and loving. That the way of the kingdom is not just a way of salvation, but it's a way into another way of being altogether. We see the world differently. We think about the world differently. We love the world differently. And the prophet calls us to that kind of transformation. While the prophets are in a way future tellers, they do talk about the future, they're concerned with the future as it impinges upon the present. In other words, the reason they tell the future is they want to see our present-day lives transformed. It's not enough to just know that when we die, we will be with the Lord. The prophet calls us to ask the next question. If I'm going to be with the Lord when I die, how should I live today? He asks us that as individuals, as families, as a church community. We believe that the Lord is going to bring us home, that one day he will return and bring us into glory. How does that impact how you live every day of your life? It's not just knowing the future for the sake of knowing the future. It's knowing the future for the transformation of the present. So that's what prophecy is, and these prophets are trying to call the people of God to a different way of thinking being, living, and loving in their world that is different than what the rest of the world around them wants them to be. And he's, they're doing this in a particular time period. The majority of the minor prophets fit within one section of Old Testament history. Here's the complete picture of our history. We begin all the way on the left here with creation. We end all the way on the right with new creation. And right in the middle... You see this little section here. This is the Old Testament. This is, if you were to start in Exodus, Genesis is just before this. Moses leads the people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land, and they live in that promised land for generation after generation after generation. But eventually, because of their sin, because of their hard-heartedness towards the Lord, they are exiled. And the exile is as cataclysmic a moment for the Old Testament as slavery was in Egypt. It's very important. And it's actually very important for the New Testament as well, because in the New Testament, we are described as Christians living in exile. We are an exilic people. So the exile captures not only the, the history of the people of Israel, but it captures the mind of the people of Israel. It's such a formative event that the entire section of the Old Testament called the prophets revolves around this moment, the exile. When the Assyrians came in and took the north into exile, and when the Babylonians came in some time later and took the south into exile. The north and the south is the reality of Israel at the time. We're going to look at this next week. In 1 Kings 12, it tells a story of what is basically a, a cold civil war 
The nation is torn in two, and they don't fight to tear in two. In fact, the Lord spares them from having an actual war, but the north splits off from the south. And this happens in in the reign of a man named Rehoboam, who is the son of Solomon, which means that the kingdom of Israel is united for precisely three kings in all of its history. Saul, then David, then Solomon. Solomon's son Rehoboam, we'll see this next week, rules in such a way that the north rebels and they set up their own king in the north. And they will not come back together again until after the exile. For hundreds of years, they will be separate from one another. It's a divided kingdom. When we talk about Israel then, after this split, Israel's in the north, that's the green. Judah is in the south, that includes Jerusalem. Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and they will be split like this for the majority of their pre-exilic history. But not only are they split between themselves, Israel and Judah, but Assyria is in the north, and they are a massive army that is beginning to destroy all the nations around them, and they want Israel and Judah too. That's the threat from the north. Israel and Judah will look to Egypt down here in the southwest, hoping that Egypt and an even lower kingdom, Cush, will maybe be able to help them against the Assyrians, but the Assyrians will eventually wipe out the Egyptians and Cushites as well. The only kingdom in this area, in fact, that will survive Assyria is Judah in the south. Israel in the north and everyone else will be sent into exile, because that's how Assyria did it. They came in, and they took you from your land, and they spread you out throughout all the nations around. They scattered your people so that you no longer had a national identity, and they destroyed whatever religion you would have. This is what's coming, and the prophets see that this is coming, and they begin to talk about it. The vast majority of the prophets are in this pre-exilic, before the exile. That's where most of them are working. This is God over and over again through the prophets saying, don't trust in Egypt and Cush. Don't trust in your own strength. Don't trust in the gods around you. Trust in me. I'm your God. I'm the one who led you out of Egypt. I'm the one who established you in the promised land. Worship me, follow me, and I will save you from the Assyrians. Time and time again, he calls them to repent for their sin and their idolatry, their spiritual adultery. Time and time again, prophet after prophet, God is ignored. Eventually, Israel and Judah fall. Most of the prophets before the exile are major prophets, as Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and uh, part of Isaiah during the exile. Then we have these three prophets after the exile. But there's this Annoying little prophet named Joel, who is completely impossible to date. It's frustrating for people who like history like me. We don't know when he wrote this. Um, It is frustrating because we'd like to be able to use history to explain it. But this graph, as you see, has Joel doing his work before the exile. Pastor John, in his sermon, he dates Joel during the exile. And if you look in the ESV study Bible, which I use as my preaching Bible, they have the prophet Joel doing his work after the exile. Because there's nothing in the actual book that gives us a clue. We don't know. We're all guessing. 
So that's why I have these three wonderful question marks next to Joel. We just don't know. Maybe, maybe that's where he is. Maybe he's during the exile. Maybe he's after. But here's what matters. Joel's message, while it was certainly written in the time and a place, is a timeless message. That's how it works for all of the Word of God. The Word of God is timeless. The Word of God can't be locked just into its context. It comes from a context. It matters what the context is. But the message of the Word of God is as true today as it was in the day of Joel. And so while it's helpful to know the history, in times like this when we don't know the history, we're not hamstrung. We're not left going, well, then we can't understand Joel. No, yes, we can. Because this is the word of God. And the Spirit uses his word to transform his church and to transform individual Christians like you and like me. And so what we want to do today is we want to turn our attention to Joel. We want to ask the question, what does Joel teach us today? What is all this about locusts, which I'm about to read to you? How does that impact me today? What, this, this language around the day of the Lord that sounds terrifying, how does that impact our church, our individual lives? It is true. We don't know when it was written, but we do know who wrote it. Not just the prophet Joel, son of Pethuel, but God Almighty who speaks to his people through his word. Joel has three chapters, and basically you can cut the book into three sections. They look like this. The three R's of Joel, ruination, repentance, and restoration. Ruination, repentance, and restoration. The ruination comes from an event we think is a historical event and not just a metaphor, but could have been a metaphor for nations coming down from the north. Could be Assyria, could be the Babylonians, or it could have been an actual locust plague that hit the region. Locusts are a problem in this part of the world, and locusts can come through and wipe out entire crops in moments. When this happens, it sets up a major economic ruin. Ruination is what the people of God are facing I want to read to you sections of the book of Joel, and you're going to get some of these sections read to you, and I'll have some of the verses on the screen in a moment. But I just want you to hear this. I want you to imagine you're there in the time of Joel, and you're hearing Joel proclaim this prophecy. Receive it as you would have heard it. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the, coding, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. 
The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them. Behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Behold, before them peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses and enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The imagery here is of destruction. Of everything that the people of Israel love being wiped out. And whether this is because of a locust swarm that has come through, or whether this is because of the exile that the people have faced or are going to face or have faced before, we know that the people are suffering. The people are weeping and mourning because it's all been ruined. Maybe you've had an experience like this. I know I have. When you look at something that you love that you tried to build, you look at something that you think is beautiful and you see that it has been ruined. The despair, the heartache. Sometimes it's because of forces outside of your control, but what we find from other prophets is that in this case, the people are exiled, not just because they're weaker than the Assyrians, but the people are exiled because of their continual idolatry and sin. Sometimes the things that we love are ruined because we ruined them. And the despair of that moment, the heart, that is torn in that moment because we know not only is this thing that we loved been destroyed, but we had a hand in destroying it. This is what our sin does. Our sin takes beautiful things and destroys them. And yes, sometimes we are victims, but overwhelmingly, we have victimized ourselves. Overwhelmingly, we have partaken in sin, and that is why we face ruin. 
people of Israel did this. They faced ruin. And it's described as total and complete. We find that this ruin is not outside of the hand of God, but that God himself is the one bringing this day of the Lord, this day of judgment. And the language begins to shift because it's now not just what they've been through, but what they will go through in the future. That the day of the Lord that we are waiting for, his return, the return of Jesus Christ, which is the fulfillment of this, tasted first at Pentecost, we'll see that in a little while, at the return of Christ is a day of glory and triumph for the saints, but a day of terror for those who have not repented of their sins and claim Christ as their Savior. Ruination is what the people face. It is what we face. It's what all of us have faced in our sin because we were dead in our trespasses and sin. You see, we might be looking at our circumstances and saying, oh, it's ruined, but we ruined ourselves long ago in the garden. When Adam sinned in the garden, we all participated in that sin and we brought ruin on our own souls. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul says. But God, being rich in mercy because of the love with which he has loved us. By grace, we have been saved, has raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. You see, we brought spiritual ruin on ourselves. But God looked at us in that place of ruin and he said, I will lead them to restoration. But the path to restoration is not our good work. The path to restoration is not religiosity path to restoration is repentance. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth. There's the ruin. Alas, at the end of this it says, for the day of the Lord is near. But he turns from ruin To repentance. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Turn, repent, come back. An outward sign of repentance was the ripping of your clothing. You would rip your clothing as a way of showing, I am remorseful, I am sorrowful, I repent for what I've done. Look at the word of the Lord. Rend your hearts, not your garments. That is what we do when we repent. We allow our hearts to be broken before the Lord. We see our sin, we name our sin, we're clear about our sin, and then we repent. This is a work of the Spirit, and it's a work of the Spirit in the hearts of those who have faith. You see, these are already the people of God. This is not just for those who aren't followers of Jesus. This is for us. 
We are the people of God. Once we were not a people, but now we are a people in Christ. And the word to the people of God is repent. Repentance becomes not just the way we enter into the kingdom, but it becomes the rhythm of our lives. The Holy Spirit points out sin in our lives, and he says, repent. Rend your heart. Be broken over your sin that I might heal you, that I might bring you back together. I'm gracious and merciful. I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I love you. Repent and come back to me. But if the people of Israel are unwilling to identify that they are sinners, or if they're unwilling to identify the specific sin, then how can they be healed? Imagine going to a doctor and saying, Doc, I'm in pain. All right? Where? That's a bit personal. Don't really want to tell you where I'm in pain. I just want to tell you I'm in pain. Well, okay. But in order to stop the pain, I have to know where it hurts. But Doc, if I, I don't want to get specific about the pain. That's awkward. I don't want to admit where it hurts. I just want to tell you that it hurts. And, and you see how absurd that is. A doctor will eventually say, I can't help you. Because you don't want me to help you. If you wanted me to help you, you would tell me where it hurt. But you won't tell me where it hurts, so I can't help you. You see, repentance for the Christian can sometimes be a blanket thing that we do. Say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Would you just forgive me of that? Just forgive me of my sinnerness. But there are specific sins that you know you hold in your heart, that you know you cling to in your soul, that you have been unwilling to repent of. You cannot be healed if you are unwilling to repent. You cannot be healed if you are unwilling to repent. To speak to the Lord the actual sin demonstrates a humility and a brokenness that leads to healing. And salvation. I passed this slide a little while ago. I want to go back to it. It's a wonderful definition of repentance. I found this from Sam Storms. He's uh, actually the president of the Evangelical Theological Society right now. Here's how he defines repentance. The repentance to which Jesus calls the church involves ceasing from one kind of behavior and embracing another. Stop abandoning your first love and do the works you did at first. That is genuine repentance. In this article, he describes the things that are necessary for repentance. To repent, brother and sister Christian, is to speak, to name the sin, to recognize, as David did, that the one we sin against is first God then our neighbor. It is egregious when we sin against our neighbor. It is unconscionable when we sin against the God of the universe, and that is what we do every day. To repent is to speak of the sin to the Lord, to ask forgiveness, to have remorse, but then it's to embrace the opposite 
action. I've been with people, I've spoken with people, and I've said, that's a sin, you have to stop doing that. And they say, I know it's a sin, and I ask for forgiveness, but then they just keep going in the same direction. That's not repentance. That is life-ruining rebellion. To repent is not just to identify our sin and ask for forgiveness. It is to turn and walk towards holiness. What is the opposite? Let's use an example from our own service, right? We've been going through the Ten Commandments every week. A new commandment. This one, adultery. It is not enough to simply confess adultery and stop. It is to embrace chastity. That's what the commandment says. It is not just to refrain from murder. It is to embrace the lifting up of life. It is not just to say, I'm going to worship only God. It is to destroy all idols. You see, it's to walk in the other direction in holiness. That's the repentance that God calls us to. It is a painful work of God, but it is vital if we are to grow in our discipleship before the Lord. But if we do, here's the promise. The promise is that we do not remain in that place of ruination, but that we are led to restoration. Let's look at the passage as it continues. Behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they've scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. So you, know, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. Jerusalem shall be holy. Strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. The hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. That picture is in stark contrast to the destruction of the locusts, the destruction of the exile. It's all been destroyed, but I will restore you. Imagine this. Picture this in your mind. Picture the mountains dripping with wine. Imagine milk flowing from the hills. Imagine a fountain coming forth from the temple and the stream beds filled with water. This is a land literally flowing with milk and honey. It was the promise to the people, if you enter into the promised land, you will receive a land of milk and honey. Right now they face ruination, but through repentance they will have restoration. Perhaps the most beautiful verse in the entirety of Joel, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. I did this. I allowed you to be ruined. I am involved in the ruination that you might lead, be led to repentance that I could restore you to heights greater than you've ever known. God disciplines his children that we might repent. Brother and sister Christian, we ought to be fast to repentance. One of the things I was told when I was in high school, and it stuck with me, 
is that the Lord will bring his child to the end. The Reformed call it the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. I prefer the second. But he will cause repentance in you if you are his. He will lead you to discipline. And if he must break you in order to save you, he will. Brother and sister Christian, be fast to repentance. There's more here, but I want to I move on to something I don't want to miss, and I, I, I don't want to cut this off because we're heading towards time. I want to talk about something that's been happening. I want to leap ahead to these couple of pictures. You may recognize this from social media on the right. Something's been happening in Kentucky. And social media has been trying to figure it out. (laughs) We can't figure it out. There are naysayers and there are supporters because anytime anything happens, I kid you not, you walk down the sidewalk, there will be people who said you did the right way and people who said you did the wrong way. A couple weeks ago, at Asbury University, um, which is just a a relatively small four-year Christian college, um, at Asbury University, a chapel service happened. Now, I went to a small four-year Christian college. Chapels are mandatory. You have to go because you have to go. And sometimes they're incredible. Nine times out of ten, they're just fine. It was fine. By all accounts, this was just a fine chapel service. There was nothing all that special about the sermon, nothing all that special about the music. But at the end of the chapel service, after the choir sang the final verse of their final song, nobody left. And a sense of awe and transcendence filled the room. And that chapel service has continued now for almost two weeks, unbroken. It's incredible. And there are many who are trying to understand what this thing is. People are using the word revival. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you heard me say that I think the conditions are right for revival to take place. And then a couple weeks after that, Tim Keller wrote an article in the Atlantic Magazine who said, I think the United States is ready for a revival. And then this happened in Asbury, Connecticut, or Asbury, Kentucky. We don't know what this is. But here's what we do know. We know that we can actually test whether or not something is a revival. Because the scriptures are very, very clear. In order for there to be revival and a restoration, repentance must take place. That's how you get there. You get to revival and restoration through repentance, not just through a powerful emotional experience, not just because of great preachers, not just because of great songs. You get to revival through repentance. And so I was looking for any sign that this might be a revival with repentance taking place at Asbury University. This was written in Christianity Today by Tom McCall. He's, with, he's the chair of the theology department across the street at Asbury Seminary. They're different institutions, but he's right across the street. He says, I teach theology across the street at Asbury Theological Seminary, and when I, was, when I heard of what was happening, I immediately decided to go to the chapel to see for myself. 
When I arrived, I saw hundreds of students singing quietly. They were praising and praying earnestly for themselves and their neighbors and our world, expressing repentance and contrition for sin and interceding for healing, wholeness, peace, and justice. I have no idea what this will turn into. None of us do. It could be gone in a couple days. But I, I, I said to Pastor Tim this week, I was like, man, like this is great, this is cool. But I really wish, I really wish that this was happening in New York, not in Kentucky. Like, it's just Kentucky, it's too far. Like, bring it here. How will we get it here? We get it here through repentance. It begins with us. And we must take seriously the call to repent. Brothers and sisters, if we want to see God at work in our church, in Beacon, in Southern Duchess, we must take serious our sin and repent. Every week we are given an opportunity to come here to the table. We're given an opportunity to repent. And I worry that we take it too lightly. The Lord tells us he will lead us through paths of ruination. He will wreck our lives if we continue in the path of unrepentance. It is not enough to simply say, I'm sorry. It is not enough to simply name our sin and confess it. It is enough to grab the opposite. Christ is the opposite. It's to lay hold of him and say, Lord, forgive me for all that I've done. I want you. And if in the church of Jesus Christ, we take repentance seriously, how might God use that in Beacon throughout this region? Let's pray. Father, we don't know what's happening in Asbury, Kentucky. But by all accounts, you're on the move there. We're hearing stories of it spreading to other universities, other institutions. But Lord, repent, revival comes because the church repents and there is so much to repent of. The institutional churches have things to repent of and we in these pews have things to repent of. Holy Spirit, give us the courage to name our sin, to confess it, to get rid of it, and then to chase after you. Would we not just say, I'm sorry about this? Would we actually embrace the other thing? Lord, work in our hearts. Holy Spirit, point out our sin. Point out our idols that we might repent and be restored. Jesus you promised that in the last days you would pour out your spirit. And we saw this at Pentecost. Your spirit was poured out. And the prophecy of Joel was fulfilled. For we began to speak prophecies in good words. And now, Lord, those prophecies, those good words have been written down for us. They are your word, the scriptures. And they speak to us. They show us our sins. And they lead us to Christ who restores his people. Begin in us 
restore us, lead us to repentance. Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise you for what you are doing in our lives and in our church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.